Welcome to the Gut Doctor Podcast, where Dr. Neil Parikh describes GI disorders and answers common questions related to the GI tract. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We hope you enjoy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Neil Parikh, and I'm your host on the Gut Doctor Podcast. Today, we're going to discuss Barrett's esophagus with Dr. David Shaletsky, Director of Research for CTGI and Co-Director of the Swallowing, Reflux, Stomach, and Esophageal Disorders Center at Harford Hospital. Dr. Shaletsky has one of the largest Barrett's esophagus treatment programs in New England. Thank you for joining us today, David. Thank you very much, Dr. Parikh, for having me. We could likely do multiple episodes on Barrett's esophagus. I'm confident we could do multiple episodes, but we're going to try to be comprehensive in just a single episode. And then maybe if this is not too painful for you, David, I will get you back in for a few more later down the road. Um, For our listeners who are patients, what is Barrett's esophagus? Barrett's esophagus is a precancerous condition of the esophagus, which is caused by a change or a mutation of the cells lining the esophagus. This develops over time and can lead to cancer of the esophagus. Now, the most common cause is acid reflux, which is acid touching the lining of the esophagus, leading to inflammation or esophagitis. This inflammation in the esophagus or esophagitis then leads to the precancerous changes that we call Barrett's esophagus. So long-term acid reflux results in inflammation, which can then lead to Barrett's esophagus. Uh, What are other risk factors? Since acid reflux is thought to be the cause, individuals at risk of reflux are at risk of developing Barrett's esophagus, as you mentioned, whether from a weakened esophageal sphincter muscle at the bottom of the esophagus or another anatomic or mechanical problem, such as a hiatal hernia, or it could be from a physiologic condition, such as poor acid clearance from an underlying esophageal motility disorder. In addition, there are those individuals who have, for example, a strong family history of cancer of the esophagus, and those individuals may be at risk. As well, those with other underlying conditions such as sleep apnea, obesity, or engage in lifestyle choices that may predispose them from having reflux, such as significant alcohol use or cigarette smoking. I feel like it's always the usual suspects of obesity, significant alcohol use, and smoking. Uh, right, since, Barrett's, right. since Barrett's is an esophageal mucosal disease, an upper endoscopy is required to make a diagnosis. Uh, but as I understand, there are special tools along with endoscopy that you typically employ. Great question. I love to talk about this. So in order to diagnose Barrett's esophagus, an endoscopist should visualize the salmon red colored mucosa lining the esophagus that is consistent with the diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus. We use a protocol called the PROG classification in order to properly measure the circumferential and the maximal length of the Barrett's mucosa in the esophagus. Now we also need a tissue diagnosis, biopsies that are examined by expert pathologists who would corroborate the endoscopic findings. Now, in addition, we have newer technology that helps us visualize and provide an accurate histologic diagnosis, such as a procedure called narrow band imaging or NBI, 
which is a type of chromoendoscopy that uses a special blue wavelength of light to distinguish Barrett's mucosa from normal mucosa in the esophagus. We also utilize tools such as the Watts 3D brush, which is used in addition to the standard four-quadrant biopsies we take in order to enhance our sampling and analysis of the abnormal appearing tissue. So you have a few different tools that are disposable to make the diagnosis. Um, once Barrett's is confirmed, what do you do next? Lifestyle changes, anti-GERD diets, or medications? Yeah, all of that. <laughs> Everything <laughs> you mentioned. It's generally recommended to take a daily proton pump inhibitor, otherwise known as a PPI, in order to prevent Barrett's esophagus from pre- progressing to cancer. In addition, anything an individual can do to improve their reflux is certainly worth exploring. Lifestyle changes, including weight loss, getting to ideal body weight, cessation of cigarette smoking, reducing or eliminating alcohol consumption. These are all important maneuvers to prevent Barrett's esophagus from advancing to cancer. Other things, diet modification, although there's really not a whole lot of data to truly support it, is also considered important. Reducing consumption of spicy foods, citrus products, even peppermint, fatty foods, really anything that's difficult to digest and may cause reflux symptoms. Finally, there's one item that gets me in trouble every single time with my patients, and that's reducing or eliminating coffee. I never win popularity contests when I talk to my patients about reducing coffee consumption. <laughs> I, I love my coffee as well, so I, I would uh, I'd probably not be a fan of that change. Um, <clears throat> what if PPI and dietary changes alone uh, are not sufficient? When do you consider radiofrequency ablation? And, and I guess before you answer that, what is radiofrequency ablation? Right. So I'm actually going to back up even a step further. There are three basic types of Barrett's esophagus based on histologic patterns seen by our pathologists. The least likely to lead to cancer is called non-dysplastic Barrett's, which carries an extremely low risk of progression to cancer, around 0.2 or even less percent chance per year of ever turning into cancer. Then there's low-grade dysplasia, and that's the next type, which carries a slightly higher degree of risk. And then finally, there's high-grade dysplasia, which is the highest risk of transitioning to cancer. Now, extensive studies have shown that the risk of low-grade and high-grade dysplasia is high enough to consider removing the abnormal cells from the lining of the esophagus. And in the past, the only way we were really able to do this was using surgery, having a large surgery. Now, we can actually accomplish that through doing a regular endoscopy. So we have tools such as, as you mentioned, radiofrequency ablation. We can burn away the abnormal Barrett's tissue, which really just sits on the superficial part of the lining of the esophagus, about one millimeter deep. That's about it. There are other technologies that we employ, such as hybrid APC, which coagulates the abnormal tissue. And then we have cryotherapy, which freezes it off. Finally, if we find little nodules or bumps, raised areas inside the Barrett's tissue, we're actually able to resect them using the endoscope, a technique called endoscopic mucosal resection, EMR, instead of sending our patients for surgery. Wow. So we can burn, we can freeze, we can coagulate, and we can cut off all through an endoscope. Um, Correct. Right. 
Are there any special pre-op or post-op issues with radiofrequency ablation that patients need to be aware of, or is it similar to planning for an upper endoscopy? So that's what's wonderful about this. This is really an upper endoscopy. So there's really no different preparation other than having the endoscopic evaluation. There's no special bowel prep. There's no special diet beforehand. Now, afterwards, there may be some discomfort because we are performing a procedure and removing some abnormal tissue in the esophagus, but it's typically temporary and extremely mild. And there are some diet restrictions that we recommend after the procedure, because we are treating an area that's directly in the path of the food that you would ingest. So for example, soft foods for one week and maybe a few extra medications for up to a week as well. Okay. So not, not, not terrible. Um, what happens if Barrett's goes untreated? So Barrett's esophagus is considered a low risk to develop cancer. So I would certainly keep that in mind. And in addition, esophageal cancer certainly is not as common of a cancer as some others, such as colon cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer. For example, as I mentioned earlier, studies have shown that non-dysplastic Barrett's leads to cancer at a rate of really only about 0.2% or less per year. On the other hand, studies have shown that rates of high-grade dysplasia can be as high as 15 to 30% chance per year of turning into cancer. In addition, the rates of esophageal cancer, the occurrence of esophageal cancer is on the rise. And unfortunately, it's often found in later stages and makes it very difficult to treat and cure. So this has prompted a significant debate on a national level on whether or not we should be screening more patients for Barrett's esophagus, just like we screen for other types of cancer, such as colon cancer. At any rate, I believe that an individual with Barrett's esophagus can significantly reduce their chances of developing cancer if they take a daily antacid medication, such as a proton pump inhibitor, follow an anti-reflux lifestyle, and continue with regular endoscopic surveillance with a gastroenterologist. If you follow these steps, the risk is extremely low of developing cancer. If we leave it unchecked, then we're just simply rolling the dice. David, thank you very much. Uh, I hope this was helpful to all of our patients who have heartburn and may have heard about Barrett's esophagus. For any provider who was listening in today, I also hope this was helpful as an update for when to refer for endoscopic ablation. As always, I appreciate all of you listeners taking the time to listen to the Gut Doctor podcast. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you're automatically updated when we release a new episode. Until next time, this is Neil Parikh signing off. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gut Doctor podcast. For additional information about today's topic, please visit ConnecticutGI.org. Your feedback is important to us, so please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Stay tuned for more episodes of The Gut Doctor, and if you think you may need to see a gastroenterologist, just trust your gut.